Hyperion to a Saturn. Welcome to the 12th episode of Hyperion to a Seder, the Fire and Water Podcast Network's Hamlet podcast. I'm your host, Siskoid, your guide on a scene-by-scene deep-dive look at Shakespeare's masterwork through the lens of not only the text, but many film, television, comics, and music adaptations. Today, we begin Act 2, Scene 2's New Arrivals. We'll spend six episodes examining the entire scene, which contains... Polonius's approach to the king and queen, the fishmonger scene, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern accosting Hamlet, the player's arrival in Elsinore, and the oh what a rogue and peasant slave am I speech. Scene two is huge. Uh, the first part covers the king and queen's meetings with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and with Voltamand and Cornelius, even if it's one that's often cut for time in some way or other. Some versions of the play do away with the Norway subplot and so do not need Voltamand's report. Others have Rosencrantz and Guildenstern appear later without this simpering introduction. By looking at the text itself, we'll get a better sense of what is lost when directors do so. So, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, they are welcomed by Claudius and Gertrude and told about Hamlet's so-called transformation, saying he doesn't resemble himself. Well, the audience, of course, does not know Hamlet's original form, though one might suspect he was more like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern than Horatio, a career student with a certain measure of frivolity. Gertrude's lines are worth examining. She says, He hath much talked of you, and sure I am two men are not living to whom he more adheres. Well, there's a question as to when exactly Hamlet talked about the pair so much. Certainly, it has to be before his father's death, when he had use for such camaraderie. One wonders if he ever mentioned Horatio, or if his more serious attitude kept him out of stories worthy of being told. By the end of the play, the latter has become a steady and loyal confidant, while the former cannot be so trusted. There are friends for having fun, and then there are friends who can keep your secrets. And we should question why the royals didn't go straight to the better-suited Horatio. Is it that they realize he's too loyal to Hamlet? Or is there a class issue? He's too much of a commoner, while RNG are dilettantes attached to the court somehow? Another way you could interpret it is to have Hamlet talk much about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern after the ghost visit, laying a trap for the king by overplaying his friendship to two knaves he can easily read and manipulate. I like this idea, though I don't think I've seen it inferred in any adaptation. If Hamlet is the mastermind that brought them to Elsinore, he would react differently to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern's betrayal, of course. Or we could also say that Gertrude is using flattery to get them on board, and Hamlet never really talks about them. That's another way. Both your majesties might by the sovereign power you have of us put your dread pleasures more into command than to entreaty. Though Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are usually played as a foolish double act, there is evidence that they are smart enough. They share Hamlet's keen wordplay and presumably his education, and in the exchange I just played, they recognize Claudius's diplomatic skill. Indeed, the king does not have to ask for a favor when he could just give orders, but we've seen before how he has had to convince and cajole to get his position. Once they agree, the king says, thanks, Rosencrantz and gentle Guildenstern, and then Gertrude says, thanks, Guildenstern and gentle Rosencrantz. 
And this is the root of all the jokes about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern's interchangeability, the king and queen switching names in their thanks, a joke that culminates in Tom Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, which this series will look at eventually. Obviously, there's also the matter of having two characters where one would do, which may or may not have been influenced by who was in Shakespeare's company at the time. Or he may have liked the dynamic of two fawning characters playing off each other, one trying to correct or add to the other's dialogue to influence their shared fate. Symbolically, we have Hamlet's one versus two, or their flawed mirroring of Horatio, each false friend being half his worth. For directors, the duo offers a number of options. Uh, one can play on their similarity through casting, or costuming, or performance. But in any case, it is true to say that while actors may perform them differently, and indeed their dialogue makes them different, the audience never quite knows which is which, nor does it matter. They leave, uh, but before the next duo walks on stage, Polonius enters to preface the next part of the scene. He says he has news of the cause of Hamlet's lunacy, but he's also come to announce the ambassadors returning from Norway. If Claudius took the threat posed by Fortinbras lightly in the previous act, here he would put personal matters before affairs of state. He longs to hear the gossip. This is part of Shakespeare's continued undermining of Claudius's abilities as a king. Before the ambassadors walk in, Claudius informs Gertrude of the possible news, and she answers, I doubt it is no other but the main, his father's death and our o'er-hasty marriage. She's mostly in the right here, but from here on out, the royals will only follow red herrings. Though Hamlet is unusual in the comparative weakness of its female characters, Shakespeare still uses them as engines for truth. Ophelia will speak truth through her madness, and in this case, only Gertrude really knows her son. The male characters, all shown to be foolish in one way or another, refuse to listen. Re-enter Polonius with Voltaman and Cornelius. Here again, Claudius acts like a politician would. Though the ambassadors are under his command, he still feels the need to butter them up and call them friends. Their revelation that Fortinbras is arming himself against Denmark should be cause for concern, but Claudius is foolishly distracted by the madman in his midst. He takes the rest of the news at face value, never questions them again. This strand is then forgotten until the last scene of Act 5. But contrast this with Hamlet, who takes nothing at face value, including the ghost's accusation. But of course, the ambassador's story ends happily. Fortinbras is arrested by his agent uncle Norway, who rebukes, then forgives him, and sends Fortinbras and his soldiers against Poland instead. And hey, could they pass through Denmark on their way? Hamlet and Fortinbras are certainly mirrored in the play. Both have an uncle acting as a father figure, which both disobey. Norway's weakness and foolishness, then, is a clue to Claudius's own. According to Voltaman's story, Norway was all too easy to convince and ended up rewarding Fortinbras instead of punishing him, helping him invade Denmark rather than preventing him. Claudius's response is not to question it, and he, in fact, tables the matter and will read the documents later. Just like Norway, he believes anything he's told, as he will Polonius in the next section. Indeed, Polonius's line here is, this business is well ended. Well, if Polonius is wrong about everything, then the audience should wonder if this business is ended at all. After all, it is structurally suspect that a subplot would end, and end offstage, at the start of Act 2. It's obvious that Polonius is wrong, and this prefaces a more crucial error. In Brano's 1996 adaptation, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern's section is played in one take, 
ending on a walk and talk. It's an evocation of the corridors of power as later seen in the West Wing. Though the start of this very long scene can and often is cut for time, Bryna creates a lot of movement in the shot, keeping things moving and presenting us with a living, breathing Elsinore. During the scene, Gertrude is getting dressed, Claudius is drinking tea and tonic and getting his boots shined, maids are making the bed. Aside from painting a believable environment, this also creates a number of effects. First, there's the sense that Claudius is juggling way too many things. He's multitasking, but something could fall through the cracks, i.e. the Norway situation. His focus is on Hamlet's distemper, but he's contracting that out as well, and doing so in a hurry, which appropriately diminishes RNG as characters. Second, we're presented RNG in a scene filled with servants. This underscores their own relationship to the king and queen as subservient to them, and not to Hamlet's friendship. Third, Branna treats the scene ironically by staging it in the bedroom. Not only are RNG getting into bed with the villain of the play, but it also means Claudius is missing the obvious when he says, what it should be more than his father's death, I cannot dream of. RNG are played by Timothy Spall, as Rosencrantz, and Reese Dinsdale as Guildenstern. They don't make the characters interchangeable as far as the performance goes, but since neither ever gets their moment, it remains confusing as to which is which. I don't know if Branna did a little anti-casting here, because Spall looks to me more like a Guildenstern. I don't know, there's something about those sounds that fits one, <laughs> you know, one face or one body type or another. They do have character traits in common inspired by the text. The way Spall and Dinsdale play it, it's like they don't trust each other and feel they must always cover for the other, or complete or clarify the other's thoughts to get into the best possible graces with the king and queen. Their furtive looks add to the sense that we do get from the text, from the dialogue. The classic reverse repetition by king and queen here is played as if Gertrude is Correcting Claudius. Thanks, um, Rosencrantz and gentle Guildenstern. Thanks, Guildenstern and gentle Rosencrantz. And the body language bears out that the queen knows them better than the king does. She can at least tell them apart, which lends more weight to her description of them as Hamlet's best friends. It's at least her perception of the relationship. And as is often the case, the parent may not have been updated on her child's evolving relationships. Claudius receives a message that his ambassadors have returned from Norway and continues his walk and talk with Polonius this time. They enter the throne room filled with drilling fencers, keeping up with the theme of a living Elsinore, and also prefiguring both the warlike entreaty we're about to see and the final scene of the play. Though important affairs of state are about to be discussed, it's Polonius's contention that he's found the cause of Hamlet's madness that actually captivates the king. And Polonius must actually redirect Claudius to the ambassadors. Claudius may well be rushing through the next conversation, which is why he misses the clues to the danger Denmark faces. Given his own political treacheries, he should have been more sensitive to them. Voltaman's story is shown in flashbacks, which actually do show more clues to Fortinbras' treachery, with Rufus Sewell looking especially sinister and insincere. Don Warrington uh, was well cast as Voltaman because his rich voice is perfect for narration. Of course, the narration is flawed because it is so upbeat. It paints a rosy picture where none exists, contributing to Claudius's blindness to what's really happening. Makes vow before his uncle nevermore to give the assay of arms against your majesty. Whereon 
old Norway, overcome with joy, gives him 3,000 crowns in annual fee and his commission to employ those soldiers so levied as before against the Polak. Olivier omits this section, and in fact removes Rosencrantz and Guildenstern from the play entirely. The play survives the cut, just as it does that of the ambassadors and of the entire Norway subplot, but at the cost of texture. In losing RNG, we lose mirrors of Horatio and Hamlet, though that mirroring does not seem to particularly interest Olivier. RNG are, after all, mirrors of each other, and their interchangeability perhaps a sort of key to the play's themes. Key speeches made at them are turned into monologues, and important exchanges are given to the play's other sycophant, Polonius. Sad to see these two gone from the play, but like I say, it still works. Of course, you could probably convince me that the play works with any of the characters removed from it, and I'd believe you. Stoppers, Rosencrantz, and Guildenstern are dead is one example, and it's the one that is the complete opposite of Olivier's. In the BBC version, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are introduced with a symmetrical shot that creates the necessary equivalence between them. Claudius continues to play the politician, buttering them up to make sure they will betray Hamlet's confidence, not that he had cause to worry, while Gertrude seems more sincere in her compliments. Both overestimate Hamlet's love for these two individuals, although it's entirely possible the prince would have trusted them more had their mission not been discussed in open court, which it has. When Hamlet later says he knows they were sent for, it may infer that he has spies in the court or just that things really aren't so secret in Elsinore. Do they think he's so out of it that he won't hear the castle gossip? RNG are played by Jonathan Hyde, Rosencrantz, and Jeffrey Bateman, Guildenstern, who both exude that certain lack of trustworthiness, licking the king's boots as they prepare to betray a friend. As with the 1996 version, Claudius flips their names around and Gertrude corrects him. Thanks, Rosencrantz and gentle Guildenstern. Thanks, Guildenstern and gentle Rosencrantz. <laughs> They laugh as if this often happens and bow only to her hand, while Claudius is in incredibly good spirits throughout the scene. Only Gertrude seems genuinely concerned. Claudius, when played as a real villain, as he is here, cannot be anything but selfish. He's looking into Hamlet's madness only as a way to keep Gertrude happy, not for her sake, but ostensibly to make his own life easier and more pleasurable. His joy only breaks once, when she awkwardly mentions their over-hasty marriage. I doubt it is no other but the main, his father's death and our over-hasty marriage. Well... She almost doesn't say it. It's the elephant in the room, and Claudius doesn't want to face the possibility. Are those his first pangs of guilt here? Claudius's big show continues with the arrival of the ambassadors to Norway. As they reveal Fortinbras's plan, Claudius gesticulates towards Polonius silently, saying, I knew it! I told you! By the end of the ambassador's tale, he's applauding, as is the assembled court. He's spun a potential danger for the state into a victory. But he's deluding himself. He's so giddy, drinking it in, so occupied with the business of looking good, that the ambassador's story need not be examined. He hands the Norwegian letter to an attendant without even saying the line about reading it later. That small cut makes Claudius even more careless. There is a missed opportunity I should mention at this point. In their first scene, Voltaman and Cornelius seem very serious, and I mentioned at the time that it looked like they were unhappy with the recent change in government. I postulated the possibility of their being loyal to Hamlet Sr. 
and resentful of Claudius's ascension to the throne. Could they be complicit in Norway's betrayal? Did they help arrange Fortinbras's passage through Denmark, a coup in the making? Fortinbras comes in at the end as a conqueror, but says Hamlet would have proven most royal had he ascended. Was he invader or rescuer of Denmark, there to depose Claudius and restore Hamlet to the throne? What the staging needed here to close the loop is a knowing look between the ambassadors. In its absence, they simply appear to have had a change of attitude between acts sharing in the happy news that they're reporting. Zeffirelli's Hamlet and Hamlet 2000 do not have this part of the scene at all. In Fodor's case, though we can hear Claudius' speech to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, the camera instead shows us the dreamlike image of Hamlet's junior and senior from an earlier time sitting on the floor. The child Hamlet is throwing dice and laughing. An image of risk, of invoking fortune of the fate awaiting both these characters later in life? Not sure. Happier times juxtaposed with the present day's misfortunes. This is not strictly a flashback because the father and child become aware of the Claudius scene and watch it. Hamlet Sr. is dead, of course, but how can his young son also be haunting Elsinore? Well, in a sense, all the characters who die in the play are already dead. They're fated to be so, or by now, in the knowledge held by the audience, they are dead. Fodor's Elsinore, which is an overlit decaying house, could easily pass for an afterlife in which all these characters are continually replaying the events leading up to their deaths. I guess it's a metaphor for theater. The presence of a ghostly boy Hamlet links him to the dead father and also represents the death of innocence in grossly symbolic terms and an image of the memories Hamlet said he would erase. Erased memories belonging to the world of the dead. The scene does show a relationship between father and son that is near absent in Shakespeare's original. Though Hamlet extols his father's virtues in the text, his childhood memories feature Yorick, a surrogate parent. As the director takes an interest in the words being said, the camera's eye moves to the introduction of RNG, though they are not identified more than that. Guildenstern is played by Simon Nader, but the actor playing Rosencrantz is not credited. The scene is interrupted by the arrival of Polonia, which Guildenstern eyes with a measure of lust, uh, who has news about Hamlet. Immediately, she elicits jealousy from Gertrude, whose line about the true cause of Hamlet's madness is thrown out not with regret, but with ire. I doubt it is none other but the main, his father's death, and our oh, hasty marriage. The scene plays as if calling RNG was Gertrude's idea, and so Polonia's meddling intrusion frustrates her. It's also an artifact of the gender switching of the Fodor version that the king's closest advisor would sexually compete with the queen for his attentions. We'll see in the next section how that particular triangle continues to play out. Moving on to Tenant's Hamlet. Not for the first time, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are introduced with symmetrical staging, well used to shore up Claudius's confusion as to which is which. He hesitates, but in this instance, gets their names right, which makes his getting it wrong later funnier. Gregory Doran's version very much makes this Gertrude's idea. Claudius searches for words, even as she prompts him with her eyes, with gestures, and eventually she feels she must jump in. Their dance is not unlike that of RNG themselves, making sure the other's words are not misinterpreted. It almost looks like the couple hastily practiced this and her eventual unrehearsed contribution is to compliment RNG even more. Is she afraid that RNG will betray the royal couple to Hamlet because she believes them to really be his friends? 
or has exact word choice more writing on it. It came to me that Claudius is in effect leading the witnesses in the scene. When he says he can't imagine it's anything more than Hamlet's grief at work, he's putting that preconception in their heads, even as he ironically clutches Gertrude's hands, not acknowledging the other possible cause. Is the king asking them to find the cause of Hamlet's madness, or is he asking for them to report that it is indeed grief to confirm his bias? Perhaps Rosencrantz is right to be wary, especially if he's being asked to potentially prove a king wrong. Sam Alexander plays him as the more liberal-minded of the two. He wears a leather jacket and everything. In opposition to Tom Davies' tall, dark, and more conservative Guildenstern. They do a good job of differentiating the two parts. Their choices are based on the lines themselves. Rosencrantz is less committed and questions more, like, why are you asking us rather than ordering us? while Guildenstern is all about deviating the conversation away from his partner's effrontery and onto the business of bootlicking. Like the royal couple, they offer up a nervous performance where one wants the other to say certain things. A light touch is used throughout, as RNG are once again misidentified by Claudius, which requires the queen to correct him. Guildenstern's last lines come after they've been dismissed, turning Gertrude's I amen into an impatient but polite reminder that they've overstayed their welcome. The heavens make our presence and our practices pleasant and helpful to him. I amen. This is a recurring motif throughout this version of the play. Claudius and Gertrude play the entire scene in a state of giddiness, giggling without cue, smiling whenever they set eyes on each other. Gertrude's allowance for Hamlet's madness, being caused by their over-hasty marriage, doesn't come off as a reproach. She kisses his finger almost immediately, leading us to believe that their love is more important to them than Hamlet's tantrum. I doubt it is no other but the main, his father's death. And our, our hasty marriage. Uh, uh, uh. We will sift him. They know they've been naughty, but perhaps their son needs to get over it. People in love can be cruel to those who are not. And finally, just a quick look at the original Classics Illustrated, where we don't learn much about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern upon meeting them, only that they are two of Hamlet's friends, and that they have been called to help find the cause of Hamlet's strange behavior. One dresses in green, the other in blue. They do not appear until after the play within a play, and are basically used only as escorts for Hamlet to England. Their inclusion in a single panel at this point, without having them board Hamlet and drawing the what-a-piece-of-work-is-a-man speech out of him, is a complete waste. The Berkeley version does not include this first meeting with RNG, but does have them boarding Hamlet as false friends later in the scene, at least. And, well, that ends our look at Act 2, Scene 2, Part 1. Next time, Scene 2 continues with Polonius gossiping with the royals. If you have thoughts on this particular episode, please head over to fireandwaterpodcast.com and leave them there. And if you like this content, think about visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. Thanks for listening, and I hope, dear listener... You will return for Act 2, Scene 2, Part 2, Brevity. The rest is silent.